This is Top Floor, episode 38. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 38. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. After a childhood spent in small coal mining town in eastern Pennsylvania, Joe Stren hit the road for New York City as soon as he turned 18. He worked all kinds of jobs before joining some friends in a new pursuit, dumpster diving. They'd pull something out of the dumpster, rent a spot at the nearby flea market, and sell their found treasures. After a time, this weekend hobby turned into a store, which grew into Old Good Things, the nation's leading architectural salvage company. Old Good Things has three locations in New York, one in Los Angeles, and a big one in Scranton, Pennsylvania. The company upcycles from the most prestigious New York historic hotels, Broadway theaters, prominent commercial buildings, and industrial warehouses. Joe's business, which started as a lark of sorts, has provided props for productions like Boardwalk Empire, Madam Secretary, and Law and Order, dun-dun, and helped to save treasures from hotels like the Waldorf, Astoria, and the Plaza. Their items have been used to decorate dozens of prominent hotels and restaurants. So today, Joe and I are going to talk about turning trash to treasure. But before we jump in, we have to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals with burning questions. You can submit your own by calling or texting me at 850-404-9630. Today's question is maybe the first emergency call button question that has made me mad. And it (laughs) comes from Persephone. Persephone is asking this question, Joe, that I know you're going to roll your eyes at, but it is... What is the value of a brick and mortar store? Why isn't everything online these days? What do you think? Well, our website, we do have like 14,000 items online at the present moment, soon to be 15,000. However, even with that, even with having two professional photographers take pictures and they do try and get the details, seeing the piece in person, be it a dresser, a doorknob, a marble mantle. It's not the same as looking at a photograph and seeing the piece in real life, you know, the richness of its patina, its history, its worn marks. You know that this piece was loved. Each piece has its own, if walls could speak, <laughs> so to speak, if that mantle could speak. If I'm looking for a new iPhone or a new computer, I could visit the, the, the usual top websites because I know what I'm getting. They all look the same. It's literally a matter of number crunching. But with antiques such as this, it's a totally different ballgame. It's more of a touchy, feely, warm, fuzzy feeling type of thing. 
I couldn't agree more. I'm a big fan of a brick and mortar store, not just to get a sense of the particular piece, but to get ideas and get inspiration for, you know, whatever I'm trying to accomplish. So I agree with you, Persephone, never submit another question again. Thank you. So Joe, tell me about how you got into the salvage business. How did you find out that there could be profits in dumpster diving? Like what are the, some of the first things that you found and resold or where did you sell them? How did you find customers? Tell me everything all about it. Well, at the time, um, some of my friends and myself, we had like a small construction business, mainly a flooring business. And some of the things that we would pull out of these different showrooms or houses were actually people were selling at flea markets. And some of the workers would say, you know, we ought to grab some of these, take it to one of the local flea markets and see if we could sell this stuff off rather than paying to have it throw it out. So that's what we did. We started um, saving some of the stuff and then we would take it to flea markets, et cetera. One of the first things that we got was was out of um, a Harlem brownstone. It was above the entryway of the front door. And it was full width, you know, of the entryway door. It was a half seashell, three-dimensional, hand-carved with really beautiful blue paint. And we actually took that as a logo for our business. Huh. So did you keep the half shell or did you move it right along? We moved it right along. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. I had a feeling that would be the answer. We did get good photographs of it though. Well, that's really cool. As your business grew, I know that you started bidding for salvage rights to different construction projects. And when I learned about this, I had never heard of that before. Can you explain a little bit about what that means? What are salvage rights? Well, we were fortunate enough to start this business before the internet, before (laughs) eBay. And therefore, it was a lot easier business to get into. Because nowadays, people, they have stuff... And everyone thinks it's worth a million dollars, even <laughs> if it's, you know, ripped up to shreds or broken. Some of the things that we especially look for, we look for the unusual. For example, for Soho House, you know, they're worldwide. We uh, provided them tens of thousands of square feet of corrugated chicken wire glass. What is that? Well, chicken wire glass was well known back then. It started in the 20s, maybe earlier. I'm not sure at the beginning. But the molten glass would have chicken wire, as from the farm, embedded into the molten glass. And this was for for structural reasons, because if something was to happen, the glass would break, it would more likely not shatter as bad because a chicken wire mesh would hold it together. It was used a lot in industrial applications, windows, doors, skylights. Corrugated chicken wire glass was developed, patented in 1922. Wow. And they stopped making it. Uh, Pittsburgh Plain Glass, I believe, was the last manufacturer in 1964. And as the glass was still molten, they would run it through a couple of rollers that would actually create a wave pattern in it. So it sort of looked like the corrugated part 
of a corrugated box and you look at the side. It's quite visual. Or like corduroy pants, kind of. Exactly. <laughs> and this was used a lot for windows because it helped direct, you know, channel the water to flow off or the snow to slide off. And as well as a structural enhancement because the corrugation made the glass stronger. It was, again, more resistant to breakage. Oh, that's interesting. So what did Soho House want with that many thousands of square feet of the glass? They were doing a, a large resort out in the farmlands, done in like a rustic vibe, you know, farmland, et cetera, et cetera. So they're using this as the windows. Oh, wow. That sounds really cool. After your landlord raised the rent on your first store that was in Brooklyn, I know you moved the store to Manhattan near the flea markets on 24th Street. Did that move change the type of customer that you got? Definitely. When um, we first started out, our first store was on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. That was known as Antique Row because there was a lot of antique shops there. And a lot of our early salvage jobs were brownstones in Brooklyn, you know, Park Slope, bed etc. And we got a lot of brownstone doors, which we still have thousands, literally thousands. We still have probably the, the biggest collections of antique brownstone hardware in the country. And that was mainly our client base, you know, in Brooklyn. Gotcha. When we were forced to move to Manhattan because the rents were cheaper in Manhattan than in Brooklyn, we moved right next to, there was a group of flea markets right around 24th and 6th Avenue. So our client base changed because it wasn't just the um, people repairing and fixing up their brownstones, but now we had more of a New York crowd, Upper East Siders, Upper West Siders. We had a lot more dealers from other cities come in. Because that area was well known for the flea markets. So a lot of dealers from other states would come, they'd walk through the flea markets very early, you know, with the flashlight at six o'clock in the morning. Then they would come right over our store, which was half a block away. And we would have all of our fabulous finds from, again, from Bed-Stuy or from Harlem or wherever else. And they would pick through and we, we did a lot of wholesaling. Wholesaling is still... A good percent of our business, maybe half. I forget the numbers. <laughs> what led to opening the second, third, and fourth stores? It was demand-driven. We saw a market. For example, the West Coast was and still is one of our biggest areas that we ship to. So for us, as a business decision, it made sense to open up a what we thought at the time was going to be a warehouse in Los Angeles. <laughs> and that happened at the time to be two blocks from what was then a large uh, D&D building, a design building. Gotcha. So all these designers would stop by. Instead of it being a warehouse, it became a store. And it's still very well. We still have a lot of designer traffic. I bet those first people who discovered it were mad when you guys were like, oh, wait a minute. We can't be a warehouse. We need to be a store. And everybody else got to come in. It was a little rough in the beginning because you know we were receiving pallets of stuff to further deliver on our trucks You know, on the West Coast. People would be coming in. They'd want to buy stuff. And you know, after a little bit, you kind of got used to it and kind of like, uh, I think we have a market here. You know, So it was great. 
That's really cool. One of the things that Old Good Things is best known for is serving as a resource for restaurants and boutique hotels, particularly for architectural features like lighting bars, all that kind of stuff that are really unique. Can you tell us about one of the first of those types of projects that you worked on? Yes. One of the first projects that we worked on was when we acquired a large amount of original lighting from the Fountain Blue in Miami Beach. Oh, wow. That was hand-blown Murano lighting and other lighting of, of sorts from Italy. And not only did we get a lot of their six-foot-tall wall sconces dripping with crystals, but we had a lot of original hand-blown Murano lighting, brand new, unopened, and lighting parts that they kept in store. Their attic stock. Oh my God. Exactly. Because they never knew when a chandelier would need to be replaced or if someone would knock a leaf off of it. And this was all made especially for them, their design type stuff. So brand new. It was great. We did very well with it. We still have some. Wow. That is so amazing. Do... People who are doing those types of projects typically come to you looking for something specific and then you source it? Or do they just sort of wander through your stores, your inventory and get struck by inspiration? It's both. A lot of people know us and therefore we know a lot of people. And people come to us because they know if we can find it, we know someone who does have it. Also, we have a lot of people that come like you're saying, looking for inspiration. They want a certain type of look. Interesting. I did a lot of looking at your website and I know that you have so many... I'm going to call them artifacts from the Waldorf Astoria. Can you talk about that project in particular? Like, How did you get the items? Were there a lot of people competing for the rights to salvage that building? How did it work? We had a lot of competition. I mean, the Waldorf Astoria is known worldwide. It's come up on this show many, many times. Oh, wow. Well, there you go. It really was one of a kind as far as a hotel. A lot of people don't know that when that building was designed, they had a team of designers to make sure that every suite was different than every other suite. Oh, wow. It wasn't the uh, repetitious cookie cutter that you see in most hotel chains today. That way, every time you went there, you had a different experience and you came away with from it with a different experience. Oh, that is so charming. For example, we pulled out 230 fireplaces. They were sourced out of Europe before the Waldorf opened up in 1931. I had the privilege of photographing them. 78,000 photographs altogether. Good grief. But after a while, I realized that every single mantle was different than every other mantle. That is unbelievable. We also got like 3,500 pieces of lighting out of there, including the light of the chandeliers from the um, starlight room, which were massive Marie Therese chandeliers, six foot by six foot. We got the lighting out of what was originally called the crystal room, all over the place, corridor lighting, 
thousands of pieces. When you take down a chandelier like that, that has like a bazillion different little teeny tiny fiddly pieces, I I hope this doesn't feel like a stupid question, (laughs) but do you all have enough expertise and experience on your team that you just are like, we've got this, we know what we're doing? Or do you have to bring in some sort of I don't even know if this is a thing, a chandelier expert. Like, how does it, how does the technical part of that work? Well, we've been doing 27 years. (laughs) You're like, we got this, dummy. (laughs) Well, even with the Waldorf, we didn't quite have it, but we learned real fast. We had a team of up to 15 people working 10 hours a day, six days a week on the initial beginning of it. Wow. Each one of those crystal chandeliers, like the one out of the starlight room or the one out of the rotunda on the 18th floor and step off the elevator right before the starlight room, each one of those had to be hand taken apart, labeled, bubble wrapped, or wrapped in butcher paper, depending on what it was, and then marked in separate boxes. So it was tedious. It wasn't a thing of just grab it and go. (laughs) Even like those fireplaces, we had three teams of two men taking them apart because that's as much as an art as it is anything else. Because the mortar, for example, with the fireplaces, the mortar that holds the two marble pieces together gets harder and harder as the years go by. So that by the time we got there, the mortar was actually harder than the marble we were trying to pry it away from. Oh, wow. And you had to almost be sort of like a surgeon uh-huh. because you have to tap at the right spot with the right tool to break the bond between the mortar and the marble without breaking the marble. <laughs> that is a big job. Old Good Things hospitality clients represent sort of this who's who in hospitality. Can you talk about some of your very famous New York hotels besides the Waldorf Astoria that you've either done salvage in or have offered product to? Recently, we just finished the Grand Prospect Hall in Brooklyn. It's well known in New York. I don't know how well known it is outside of New York. I'll make sure we link to it so people can take a look. Thanks. We got 10 large-scale crystal chandeliers from Italy. Wow. Uh, We got a lot of bronze chandeliers, again, with old crystals. We took down their grand ballroom chandelier, which was huge. A lot of wall sconces. Also, out of the Plaza Hotel here in New York, we pulled out over 100 marble mantles from there. They date to the 1890s. We've got the original um, wedding cake style crystal chandeliers at a lobby. Oh, cool. Sconces, um, stair railing, hundreds of the original doors I've made out of I believe it's Cuban mahogany. And do those doors that you pulled have still have the room numbers on them? No, they had all been taken off. Got it. Yeah, and they were sold off separately at their auction. Too bad. I was hoping I could replace my office door with one of those. Well, we may still have some of the original, 
Plaza Hotel doorknobs. Remember they had that famous PP design with the yeah. reversed P? Yes. Uh, we have some of the original ones. The Bowery Hotel, it was a very good client. We got a large amount of paneling out of the Philadelphia Civic Center. And again, a lot of lighting. The fencing on their terrace, if you've ever been on the upstairs terrace, second floor. But the Nomad Hotel, when it opened up, bought lots and lots of fireplace accessories, tables, again, lighting, seating. And I know I had said Soho House before, but we've shipped worldwide to them. Custom-made tables, seating, desks, furniture, an enormous amount of lighting, plus the famous corrugated chicken wire glass. Wow. I'm so glad to have learned about that glass. So... I know that you are a businessman, but do you ever salvage something for sentimental reasons? Like it's something that reminds you of when you were a kid. Recently, when we were doing the Grand Prospect Hall, some of the items out of there reminded me of my childhood. Um, For example, I hadn't mentioned this, but the Grand Staircase there had these cast iron balustrades. Mm-hmm. They're the pieces of the step that hold the railing up. And these cast iron balustrades had a torch design into them. They're all hand painted in silver paint, gold paint, etc. Oh, that sounds Very cool. three-dimensional. And that was a lot of some of the eastern Pennsylvania buildings where I grew up. It was all that late 1800s type of building when coal was king. Interesting. Is there anything else that's been particularly special, interesting, or meaningful to you that you've found over the years? One thing that I was amazed at was the, unfortunately, they're all sold now. (laughs) But when I went through the um, American Airlines terminal, they had these humongous chandeliers, seven foot, seven inches diameter, 44 inches high. They looked like spacecraft. Oh, cool. Every word, a couple of decades later, getting these. And we had them in our stores. And I remember as when I, when I took one of my first plane flights, which was a big deal, looking up at them. And then here I was decades later having them in one of our stores. Oh, wow. That's crazy. That's a really full circle moment. Okay. So... I we've tried to go down the sentimental road, but I know you're not a super sentimental guy. So let me turn this on its head and ask you, what is the most profitable thing that you've ever pulled from a dumpster? Well, now there's a story. Back when I was still doing flea markets, when I was a young man, I used to do a flea market on 25th and 6th, part of that whole bunch of flea markets we're talking about. I had gotten up late. I got to the flea market late. Everyone else was set up and there I was pulling up. I should have been there like at seven. I was getting there at nine, nine thirty. <laughs> so I was so late. There was actually parking spaces in front of it. So I pulled in. I looked across the street and there was a dumpster. And I thought everyone has had to have dived into this dumpster. There had to have gone through it. But I went over there anyway because it's what I do. And there were. <laughs> Two flat files or architects files or map files, you know, different names, same idea. Thin, long, big drawers for blueprints. They're so cool looking. 
So there were two of them. So I jumped in and I handed out parts to the person I was working with. We carried both of them over to our stand. And an hour, hour and a half later at most, I sold the first one for $500. Holy guacamole. That was probably one of the most interesting and best ones that, you know, dumpster dives I've ever did. That is amazing. I love that. (laughs) And you were running late and it must have been that everybody else was so busy setting up that they didn't bother to check that one close by. That is the best. I love it. Either that or they took all the light stuff and left me the heavy stuff. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. This sounds like a good time to take a break. We'll get right back to my conversation with Joe Stren. After this, Joe tells me about the closest thing he's had to a sentimental find and what to stock up on the next time I'm thrifting. Be right back. Top Floor is supported by Cayuga Hospitality Consultants. For more than 35 years, Cayuga's international network of hospitality consultants has helped guide industry stakeholders from owners and operators to lenders and investors. Whether you need help with a short-term project or longer-term guidance, consultants bring executive-level lodging, food and beverage, asset management, and development expertise. Cayuga brings together every discipline of hospitality to deliver operational excellence and financial success. Learn more at cayugahospitality.com or call 866-386-4020. And Cayuga is spelled C-A-Y-U-G-A. As you know, we like to make sure that our listeners come away from each episode of Top Floor with a couple of very practical, tangible tips to try in their businesses or in their day-to-day lives. So Joe, I'm going to ask you this. Pretend I'm building a boutique hotel and I want to include some kind of show-stopping item in the decor. What do you think I should spend my money on and what should I skip? Like you know, what are the things that are worth it and what aren't worth it? I learned a long time ago from one of of the first restaurant managers that I used to work with, that first impression is everything. When you walk into a restaurant, the decor grabs you and brings you in the first time. The food brings you in a second. We all have known that. We all heard that. It's the same thing with a boutique hotel. Every boutique hotel They're small. They have to stand out, different than the cookie-cutter hotel chains, the large-scale ones. Focus on your entryway. Large, beautiful entryway door, or when you first walk in, large, spectacular, unique lighting or stained glass. For example, that American Airlines terminal I was talking about, we recovered almost 850 pieces of stained glass from the front. Oh my gosh. The front of that terminal was roughly 317 feet long by 33 feet high. One gigantic stained glass. It was designed by Robert Sowers and it opened up, that terminal opened up in 1960. We have a lot of that kind of stained glass on hand. Something like that. For example, Christian Lubicon, who we all know, 
for their New York showroom, bought um, some of that stained glass and used it to a tremendous effect in the entryway to their showroom. That's really cool. They bought the stained glass from the American Airlines terminal. Correct. Oh, wow. I would never have guessed that. So that type of thing, just you only need one or two really spectacular pieces to set the tone, to set the mood, to set the ambiance of your lobby. So the listeners that follow the show on Instagram at Top Floor Pod know that I am an avid thrifter. I'm really particularly drawn to hotel ephemera and old signs. And so I've gone down this road of reselling things before, but I can never be certain that it's worth my time or that my taste is going to match up to what will actually sell. I have many objects in my house to prove that my taste does not match up to what will actually sell. So this is a 100% selfish advice that I'm asking right now. What are a couple of things that you would never pass up in a thrift store or at a yard sale because they have unexpected value? Hand-carved gilded or gilt picture frames. Even if they're in somewhat poor condition, there's always a market for them. They're a great design element. I'm glad to hear that because I'm very, those appeal to me very much, but I'm always like, oh, I don't think people use these in their homes anymore. So that's good to know. Anything else that I need to be putting on my shopping list? Anything Art Deco or Art Nouveau. As long as it's real and not a reproduction. Art Nouveau is a very short time period, you know, design-wise. There's very few really good examples out there compared to Art Deco, which kind of took the world by storm before the war. Uh, So either one of those is really good. And art books, you know, with large, colorful images. Like coffee table books? Yeah. Got it. Okay. Ooh, that's good to know. Yeah. And again, it's good for the home. It's good for the lobby. It's good anywhere. Well, I I may be giving you a run for your money with my uh, own little salvage shop here down in Atlanta. (laughs) I highly doubt that. All right. We've reached the point in the show where we're going to do a little crystal ball gazing and predict the future. What trends are you noticing in what restaurant or hotel designers are looking for in your stores? The mainstays are still continuing. People for restaurants and for hotels are still looking for very good quality lighting, whether it be bronze, brass, crystal, mid-century modern, good quality. They're trying to stay away from the manufactured mass manufactured look that's replicated that you could get like anywhere. Also, people are looking for one of a kind type things that will make their place stand out. Like for example, the the chicken wire glass for us is moving very well. We're doing very good with that. The stained glass, uh, old wood paneling, for example, for the Bowery Hotel in New York, uh, they bought a whole a lot of wood paneling for the first floor when you first walk in uh, from the Philadelphia Civic Center. Um, the good mainstays are, are, are still continuing. I think people are afraid to experiment a little bit 
because of the unstable times we are. Interesting. And they're drawing back to stick to what's tried and true, what really works. That's an interesting point. We talk a lot about the future of hospitality on top floor. And of course, that discussion can't be had without thinking about sustainability, the environment, climate. You have built a business on recycling. We just heard the great example of the flat files coming straight out of the dumpster and straight into somebody's living room. Was the recycling or sustainability piece always part of the appeal of this business for you or for your customers for that matter? For us, definitely. The recycling aspect was a big part of why we were doing this. And the way we look at it, repurpose, upcycle, and recycle. For example, when you consider a crystal chandelier, the old ones are made already. They're beautiful. The craftsmanship of the bronze chasing and the bronze design and the bronze chandeliers that hold crystals, a lot of it can't be replicated. It's stupendously expensive to make anything similar. Anything today is mostly made out of a mold, cookie cutter. And so these pieces are already made. They're already hanging. They're better quality. We don't have to mine the, the brass or the copper ore. We don't have to mix the chemicals together to make bronze. The crystal is already there. The, you know, the, the lead in the crystal has already been mined. So just from an ecological viewpoint, it's crazy to reinvent the will. What is next for you and what's next for your company? Well, personally, I'd really like to see us open up a store in Nashville. Don't go to Nashville. Come to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Atlanta's a little too hot. Okay. But we do have a, a pretty good client base in Nashville already. Yeah. With the producers, a lot of the Nashville artists. So to me, it'd be a logical next step. Oh, awesome. I hope you do. That's an easy trip for me. So I'll at least get to go see something. You got to put some of those uh, Waldorf Astoria spoons in the Nashville store so I can get one. (laughs) Okay, folks, before we tell Joe goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Joe, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? Well, we had three stores in New York. I work at the one at Bowery and Houston a lot. Like we're saying about the Nashville artists, we have a lot of musicians coming in there, a lot of actors coming in there. One day, this one gentleman came in, very friendly, gentle sort of person, really easy to get along with. We hit it off, we started talking. He was asking me about the background of the business. I was going over things like I am now with you. And one person walked in, trying very much to be noticed that they were trying not to be noticed, if you understand. <laughs> so we watch. Okay. When we we're able to talk, I said to him, well, you know, we do get a lot of famous actors in here. I said, obviously, someone there was trying not to be noticed while they're being noticed. I said to him, for all I know, you might be famous. And he looked at me and he looked down at the ground real sheepishly and he said, well, I did just play in Carnegie Hall last night. Oh my gosh, who was it? Uh, He was a real famous pianist. 
Oh my gosh. And you still don't know who it was. Do you know who the person was that was trying to like, don't look at me, but look at me. Don't look at me, but look at me over in the corner. I'll never tell. Oh my God, Joe, (laughs) come on. Wow. Joe Strand, thank you so much for being here. I know our listeners enjoyed hearing about your amazing and interesting company. And I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. Thank you very much, Susan. I'm glad to be here on the top floor. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the show notes for today's episode topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 38. And if you have a second, I would so appreciate it if you could leave a review in Apple podcast. Thanks for being here. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 